Section 10. Vietnam, the Advisory Years to 1965 by Robert Futrell and Martin Blumenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham McMillan, San Diego, California. Chapter 10. Tactical Air Control, Mule Train, and Ranch Hand. The Viet Cong thought in November 1961 that victory was virtually in their grasp. Completing the first phase of insurgency, they had surrounded Saigon and other urban centers and blocked many highways. For the second phase, they set up subversive apparatus and were mounting overt attacks by guerrillas, many of whom had been trained in the north. During each of the first four months of 1962, an estimated 1,000 communists entered South Vietnam. Soviet aircraft stood ready to support two North Vietnamese regiments poised in the Laotian panhandle for a possible thrust across the border. Either the North Vietnamese meant to move through the central highlands to cut South Vietnam in half, or they were forging an infantry division for attacks on Saigon. Both seemed likely alternatives. To hide its control over the insurgency, Hanoi, in late 1961, renamed the southern branch of the Lao Dong Party the People's Revolutionary Party. On December 7th, the provincial committee of the Lao Dong Party in South Vietnam's Bawin province declared, the People's Revolutionary Party has only the appearance of an independent existence. Actually, our party is nothing but the Lao Dong Party of Vietnam, unified from north to south, under the direction of the Central Executive Committee of the party, the chief of which is President Ho. Securing a copy of this statement, President Diem sent it to President Kennedy with the comment, Here at last is a public admission of what has always been clear. The Viet Cong campaign against my people is led by communists. There was nothing new in this. The point was how to combat it. The actions of President Diem's government in November and December 1961 did nothing to reassure American observers. The apparent response to American demands for reforms appeared in a series of newspaper articles. Presumably prepared in the presidential palace, these pieces denounced the United States for imperialism. Still fearing a coup, Diem resisted forming an unbroken military command chain and giving confidence and authority to the chief of the field command. Diem was not alone in feeling that the United States was pushing too hard. At times, several Vietnamese officers referred to counterinsurgency measures as the American plan. They were far from convinced that U.S. ideas and methods would work in their country. In consequence, Diem continued to approve every U.S. military advisor, explaining that he, quote, didn't want to give the monopoly on nationalism to Ho Chi Minh, unquote. Having commenced resettlement projects, President Diem was drawn to the idea of Sir Robert G. K. Thompson, former Secretary of Defense of the Federation of Malaya. Sir Robert arrived in Saigon during September 1961 as head of a British advisory mission. He suggested a program of strategic and defended hamlets to clear communists from the Mekong Delta. That same month, Diem started the strategic hamlet program under the sponsorship of his brother, no Din Hu. It would take more than military activity to subdue the guerrillas, Diem judged, and permanent victory rested on restoring the faith of the people in the government. Resettlement, he felt, would help. In contrast, American officials pinned their hopes on a centralized nationwide counterinsurgency strategy to secure Saigon, other major centers, and lines of communication. It would also keep the Viet Cong off-balance with search-and-destroy operations to clear, seize, and hold what were becoming sizable Viet Cong base areas known as zones. 
the strategy further sought to seal off the border against infiltrators. In January and February 1962, Diem gradually conceded the plan for a national concept of action, and he seemed to tilt toward a master plan by approving a series of separate projects in various places. The Vietnamese president desired that his and Farmgate's aircraft attack Viet Cong supply routes. He appeared willing to authorize saturation air attacks against communist zones without exact targeting. Because his troops could not enter these areas, he deemed them solidly hostile. In comparison, Generals O'Donnell and Magar believed indiscriminate bombing might well disturb pacification efforts. Sir Robert Thompson also thought that innocent casualties would alienate potentially friendly people. At least two influential men in the State Department, W. Averell Harriman and Roger Hillsman, shared Thompson's view. American officials devised strategic guidelines for a massive counterinsurgency operation. Due to internal political reasons, Diem refused to accept an overall Vietnamese military commander. He opted for each corps' tactical zone commanders having a forward command post. More to Diem's liking was his decree of February 3rd that designated an inter-ministry committee for strategic hamlets to draw up a national plan. Besides the 784 defended hamlets completed and the 453 being built, he planned 6,066 more in 1962. Failing to convince the Vietnamese to accept all-out military counterinsurgency, Defense Secretary McNamara acceded to a concept of smaller clear-and-hold operations. Sinkpak wished them to begin in Binh Duong province, where large communist groups threatened Saigon and Bien Hoa. But Thompson pointed out that a cleared Binh Duong would be hard to hold without pouring in thousands of troops. Diem okayed the Binh Duong mission, which got underway in March as the publicized beginning of the countrywide strategic hamlet program. As he told Thompson, it makes the Americans happy and it does not worry me or the Viet Cong. Decentralized clear-and-hold operations and the strategic hamlet program comprised the major ventures against the Viet Cong. Having repeatedly ordered the U.S. military services to come up with special measures for countering the insurgency, President Kennedy remained dissatisfied with results. Urged by the Joint Chiefs and CIA to create a single authority in Washington to fuse all efforts, he formed, on January 18, 1962, the special group Counterinsurgency, chaired by General Taylor. The group worked on the premise that subversive insurgency was a valid form of politico-military conflict, equal in status to conventional warfare. That perception was to be properly reflected in the organization and doctrine of all American programs. The group was to judge how well U.S. resources and actions dealt with subversion in South Vietnam, Laos, and Thailand. To coordinate with the group, the joint staff of the JCS gained a new office, the special assistant to the director for counterinsurgency and special activities. Indecision in autumn 1961 over American advisors engaging in combat now vanished. The special group pinpointed the particular character of counterinsurgency. Subtly, but perhaps not always clearly, the group pushed for less American and more Vietnamese involvement in the war. This point of view clashed with President Kennedy's intent to have U.S. Armed Services use Vietnam as a laboratory for studying and testing counterinsurgency techniques and equipment. The President encouraged civil and military agencies to send senior officials on temporary duty to Vietnam for orientation and learning. By November 1962, the Joint Chiefs of Staff mirrored the new outlook. 
the scale of United States involvement and the level of force, they said, should be limited and merely supplement that of indigenous forces. Where guerrilla warfare flared, American military men were to give operational assistance to show U.S. resolve. They were to extend material aid and planning guidance and to furnish intelligence, operational, and communications facilities that could be further expanded should the United States enter the war. American representatives were to bring the combat conditions under control and re-establish stability by using Vietnamese forces in well-coordinated, integrated, and adequately supported operations. Yet the United States might have to act outside the host country to deny safe havens to its surgeons spilling across country borders. Somewhat contrary to the prevailing emphasis on training Vietnamese for armed forces, the U.S. military services were expressly directed to refine their own doctrine, tactics, procedures, organization, and equipment. A wide assortment of schemes was tried amid a lingering uncertainty about the thrust of American policy and strategy. Nevertheless, President Kennedy's and Secretary McNamara's program of expanded American assistance sparked some noteworthy achievements. For the United States Air Force in Vietnam, the most pressing requirement was a strong countrywide tactical air control system. The system would enable effective and responsive Vietnamese Air Force tactical operations and squeeze the most from scarce Vietnamese and American air power. If President Diem saw how well central control worked, he might scrap the divided control of military and provincial chiefs. Since the Vietnamese could not run a control system, it would be U.S. manned and oriented. A tactical air control system had proved its worth in World War II and the Korean War, both for air defense and close support. An air operations center afforded centralized planning, direction, and control of air operations in a combat theater. Supporting it was a reporting center for radar and other warning services. In each major ground command area were subordinate air support operation centers and warning posts. PACAF and 13th Air Force planned such a system for Vietnam in December 1961, tied in with a combat operations center manned by U.S. and Vietnamese personnel for the Joint General Staff, an air operations center for the overall control at Tan Son Nut would also support the 3rd Corps Tactical Zone Headquarters. Two subordinate air support operations centers at Da Nang and Pleiku would serve the 1st and 2nd Corps Headquarters. Secretary McNamara rejected the idea of phasing in this system. He directed General O'Donnell to set it up at once from PACAF assets. Transports from the 315th Air Division airlifted men and equipment into South Vietnam from January 2nd to 14th, 1962. The USAF 5th Tactical Control Group worked at Tan Son Nut and Da Nang, while Vietnamese operated at Plaque The Air Force ran a communications center at Tan Son Nut and sent high-frequency radio teletype circuits to Da Nang, Bien Hoa, Plaque and Nha Trang. The initial system began operating on January 13, 1962. To avoid innocent targets, airstrikes needed President Diem's prior personal approval. General Anthus briefed Diem and stressed how the system's instant information on enemy and friendly air activities led to quick response. Persuaded, he permitted the Joint Operations Center to authorize airstrikes. This austere system brimmed with problems. Corps commanders reserved specific strike and transport aircraft for their own purposes, thereby taking them out of central control. Additional duties of officers at the center consumed part of their time. 
Vietnamese personnel were accustomed to afternoon siestas precisely during the hours when plans were readied and warning orders issued for the next day. Several Americans had no background for their jobs. Many grew impatient because work took longer when Vietnamese were involved. Quite a few of them were highly competent, but the Air Operations Center was certainly not a Vietnamese-directed and operated facility, as eventually intended. It was rather a USAF facility with some Vietnamese Air Force participation. Still, the workers at Da Nang and Pleiku skipped siestas and performed well, due to insistence by their USAF counterparts that the Vietnamese themselves plan and monitor missions. A number of junior Vietnamese officers acted as forward air controllers and as air liaisons officers with the ground forces. They were as hesitant to control strikes or to give advice as the ground commanders were to accept their services. Lacking authority and seemingly uninformed, these young officers appeared merely to transmit requests for information to their headquarters over communications nets, not always secure. Five USAF forward air controllers came to the country on February 15, 1962. They were pilots who were highly qualified to direct strike aircraft to targets by talking with them from observation planes in the area. The initial Air Force liaison officers to advise and assist Vietnamese ground commanders got to Vietnam in April. At first, the USAF controllers were attached to Vietnamese ground forces likely to clash with the enemy. President Diem wished only raided Vietnamese observers to control strikes, so the Americans worked mainly as assistant air liaison officers. They also flew the L-19 for the Vietnamese observer forward air controller and would help him, and they served as duty officers in the Air Operations Center. Crippling the tactical air control system with a limited and failure-prone communications between the centers and the airfields. Through the early break-in period, numerous communication equipment failures took place. PACAF had obtained newly developed AN-TSC-15 high-frequency single sideband radios for long-distance voice and teletype channels. The sets reached Clark on December 30, 1961, for field installation by the first mobile communications group. Problems arose at once. Operators in the small mobile vans sweltered as temperatures often soared to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Atmospheric conditions caused poor transmission and extensive use jammed the bands. Mr. McNamara, on January 1962, approved a JCS request for a civilian contractor to install an MRC-85 tropospheric scatter communications system. Page Communications Engineers, Inc., set about supplying many main-link channels that joined Saigon, Nha Trang, Pleiku, and Da Nang. One channel linked Pleiku with Ubon, Thailand. Not until Page wound up its work in September 1962 were there rapid, positive, and dependable communications for central control over air operations. The air control system in being sufficed for a few forces, but an entirely integrated countrywide structure would enhance air power and train Vietnamese. It would, in addition, be a framework under American command and control for directing Farmgate and USAF operational units later deployed to Vietnam. Yet General Magar, the MAG chief, undermined the concept of a centralized tactical air control system by his handling of the two Army H-21 helicopter transport companies deployed to Vietnam in November 1961. He assigned them to senior Army advisors of corps, then urged the Joint General Staff to reorganize the three Vietnamese L-19 liaison squadrons and the one H-34 helicopter squadron into four composite groups. He wanted three of the groups located at the three Corps Air Headquarters 
and the fourth held a general support. That would give each Vietnamese army corps the helicopters and planes to conduct reconnaissance, move platoon or company-sized combat patrols, transport critical supplies, evacuate casualties, and perform staff and command liaison. When General Magar asked for Army CV-2 Caribou Light Transports, L-20 and L-18 liaison aircraft, and UH-1, formerly HU-1, Iroquois helicopters, for better support of the MAG Army Field Advisors, he planned to place this air fleet under local rather than central control. Some Vietnamese questioned this parceling out of pilots and technicians of the Vietnamese Air Force, for it seemed to point to an Army Air Force. The main hope for expanding tactical fighter strength lay in upgrading L-19 and C-47 pilots. This would be impossible if the liaison squadrons passed to Army control. Beyond that, maintenance and repair facilities at the Corps' headquarter for helicopters and liaison craft were few. Impetus for centralized airlift control came from the arrival in January 1962 of Mule Train, a temporary duty detachment designed to give logistic support to Vietnamese and American forces. Mule Train drew its aircraft and personnel from Tactical Air Command's 346th Troop Carrier Squadron assault at Pope Air Force Base, North Carolina. Sixteen C-123 providers arrived overseas in January, the first four touching down at Tan Soon Nut on the second Mule Train. Sixteen C-123 providers arrived overseas in January, the first four touching down at Tan Son Nut on the second. Mule Train had 243 officers and airmen and was complete with its own maintenance, air base personnel, medical detachments, and loadmasters. The commander was Lieutenant Colonel Floyd D. Schaffner. In March, permanent duty personnel from the 776th Troop Carrier Squadron started to replace the original mule train. The transfer was finished in June. Of the 16 mule train C-123s, four were at Clark in the Philippines, ten at Tan Son Nut, and two at Da Nang. Operational control rested with SYNCPAC through PACAF, 13th Air Force, and 2nd ADVON. A joint aircraft allocation board in the MAG-J4 logistics represented interested agencies and commands, set movement priorities, and designated space requirements. The airlift branch of the Joint Operations Center, part of the Tactical Air Control System, directed flights. Specialists on temporary duty from PACAF's 315th Air Division, Combat Cargo, joined Vietnamese Air Force officers in the airlift branch to control mule train, and they often helped the Vietnamese work the first transport group. In the initial seven weeks, mule train flew more than 500 sorties of 1,693 flying hours, moved 695 tons of cargo and over 3,600 passengers, and kept an operational readiness rate of 85%. Every C-123 was scheduled for 50 flying hours monthly, leaving time for training, testing, and flight to Clark for maintenance. The number of sorties rose steadily from 296 in January to 1,102 in June. In February alone, Mule Train conveyed 1,035 passengers and 449 tons of cargo, dropped 174.5 tons of resupply to outposts, and transported 996 troops for airborne training. Frequently employed in long hauls with light loads, the C-123s operated at about 90% of capacity. 
They were supposed to support tactical operations, but made mostly routine cargo and passenger flights through 1962. The airlift system was not very efficient. Management of the Vietnamese C-47s was worse. The airlift branch could not consistently obtain firm priorities, and sudden shifts in daily orders stirred confusion at the operating and air terminal levels. Many times USAF personnel scheduling C-123s accepted Vietnamese requests based on sketchy C-47 mission reports. While C-47 crew shortages prevented peak operations, the first transportation group devoted about 25% of its efforts to transporting very important persons, or VIPs. Upgrading Vietnamese C-47 pilots to fill T-28 cockpits stripped the transport group, and Secretary McNamara authorized 30 USAF pilots to augment the unit. The pilots reached Han San Nut in March and April. At once, their relations with the Vietnamese pilots became prickly. Tension built until August, when the commander, Lieutenant Colonel Nguyen Cao Kai, assembled them all and asked that they work together. The meeting cleared the air, cemented close cordial relations, and boosted the sortie rate. To meet Army needs, the Air Force had developed the C-123 as an assault transport capable of carrying eight tons. In the late 1950s, however, the Army procured the CV-2 Caribou transport, featuring a two-and-a-half-ton capacity and good short takeoff and landing characteristics. By March 1962, Army leaders were pressuring Admiral Felt, SyncPAC, to approve a Caribou company for Vietnam. Late that month, General Harkins put in for a Caribou company and one squadron of C-123s. He intended that the Caribous concentrate on delivering supplies, chiefly food, to American advisors and isolated troops at remote spots. Of the 182 airfields in Vietnam, Harkins pointed out that 162 could accommodate CV-2s while only 115 could handle C-123s. To avoid additional overcrowding at Tan Son Nut, he planned to base the Caribous at the unoccupied airfield of Vang Thua. To check General Harkin's evaluation of airfields, the second Advon surveyed operating conditions. Aerial photographs disclosed fewer fields than listed, for some had been duplicated under French and Vietnamese names. Many small ones were unfit for either C-123s or CV-2s due to low load-bearing capacity, vegetation, or danger from the Viet Cong. At first, 83 airfields seemed possible for C-123s, but another survey showed that 145 of the current 153 fields were suitable in dry weather. Admiral Felt was out of sympathy with General Harkin's desire for extra airlift. The Army's 18th Fixed-Wing Aviation Company at Da Nang already owned 16 U-1 Otters for core support. A light utility plane, the Otter, could haul one ton of small bulk cargo or seven to eight passengers. Additional aircraft, Felt believed, would overload the few facilities in South Vietnam. He favored better use of the C-123s and C-47s on hand. Like Felt, General LeMay and his party visiting Vietnam in April 1962 thought more transports, whether C-123s or CV-2s, to be unnecessary. To attain better airlift, they suggested assigning an experienced officer to establish tighter control. Colonel George M. Foster, formerly PACAF Director of Transportation, reported to General Anthes for duty on May 1st. Later in the month, Tactical Air Force Transport Squadron Provisional 1 
was formed at Tanzonut to bring the management of mule train and other C-123s under a single commander. General Harkin was still bent on securing CV-2 caribous. He suggested using C-123 providers to handle the mainline long-haul airlift to 39 airheads. At the same time, caribous would take care of short-haul feeder air transport to 54 locations. The CV-2 could manage items too bulky and heavy for the U-1 Otters and UH-1 helicopters. Once more, the MACV commander requested an additional C-123 squadron and an Army CV-2 company. Five of the C-123s were earmarked for mule train, five for airstrip alert, two for training, and four for maintenance and reserve. Two of the CV-2s were tagged for each corps to directly support advisors four for the air transport system, two for MACV staff support, and four for maintenance and reserve. Admiral Felt acceded, but told General Harkins that daily air supply to 54 points through 39 airheads meant many of your customers are eating too high on the hog. The Army's first aviation company of CV-2 Caribous went to Thailand with Joint Task Force 116, mainly for testing under field conditions. From Thailand, the Army sent six CV-2s to Vietnam for dispersal in pairs to the Corps advisors. American activities in Thailand tapered off during December, and General Harkins reassembled the whole Caribou Company in Vietnam. He gave, as his reasons, the increased need for airlift and the desire for further field tests. When the JCS ordered Tactical Air Command to deploy a second C-123 unit to Vietnam, the 777th Troop Carrier Squadron at Pope furnished 16 aircraft. These C-123s staged through Clark, four of them flying on to Thailand. The other 12 arrived at Da Nang on June 15, 1962, going under the Tactical Air Force Transport Squadron Provisional II. General Moorman, PACAF Vice Commander-in-Chief, had proposed that the 315th Air Division, Combat Cargo, form a lower headquarters in Vietnam to control the C-123s. General Milton, 13th Air Force Commander, protested the proposal. He said it would add another air headquarters in Vietnam independent of 2nd ADVON, thereby tangling relations with MACV. Moorman next asked Milton to set up a combat cargo group in Vietnam under the operational control of General Anthus, the MACV Air Component Commander. In addition to the airlift units assigned or attached to the 2nd ADVON, Anthus would control all USAF air terminal facilities in Southeast Asia. Merman thought a Southeast Asia airlift system, complete with a combat cargo group, to be the damnedest exercise in overstaffing a proposal that I have ever heard of. Milton accepted the idea because it achieved professional supervision, quote, without creating another little empire, unquote. General Moorman asked Admiral Felt to approve the plan for centralized control of regional airlift and he requested General Harkins to establish an airlift allocation board. The board would require 50 more people in Thailand and Vietnam, along with small movement control sections at Tan Son Nut and Da Nang, and in Thailand. Moorman also wanted an aerial port squadron in Vietnam. The overall concept appealed to Harkins, but he thought that the MACV J-4 could discharge the duties of the airlift allocation board. He agreed to let the system take in all Army, Navy, Marine, and Air Force airlift, save helicopters. Felt then directed the MACV commander to form a joint airlift allocation board within his J-4, and told Moorman to create a combat cargo group as planned. At Tanzan Nut, 
PACAF organized the 6,492nd Combat Cargo Group Troop Carrier and its 6,493rd Aerial Port Squadron. Both provisional units were replaced in December 1962 by the 315th Troop Carrier Group Assault and the 8th Aerial Port Squadron. General Harkins directed the Joint Airlift Allocations Board in J-4 to approve all C-123 missions in Southeast Asia, but as Chief of Staff, General Weed deviated from sync pack guidance. Weed neither defined General Anthes's responsibilities in the airlift system as the Air Component Commander, nor made clear the combat cargo group's functions in running the air terminals. Nevertheless, the Southeast Asia airlift system was broad enough to encompass Army Caribous, Marine R-4Ds, Vietnamese and Air Force C-47s, and the USAF C-123s. Airlift specialists were interested in a clean and straight-line organization. At the same time, General Anthes expected the C-123s also to fly tactical airlift generated through the Air Operations Center of the Tactical Air Control System. The arrival of the additional C-123s in June 1962 allowed the creation of a fire brigade, Quick Reaction Force. Placed on a 30-minute alert for emergency employment 24 hours a day, this composite force consisted of five C-123s, five, later six, C-47s, one L-19, and 500 Vietnamese airborne troops. The planes dropped all the paratroopers during a demonstration on June 5th. Impressed, the Joint General Staff and the 2nd Air Division planned to locate paratroop battalions and transport aircraft together at eight dispersed locations. The concept was never completely carried out, and despite its intrinsic merit, the fire brigade idea fell into disuse. Tying down C-47s and C-123s to alert status turned out to be a waste of airlift. Between June and December 1962, the C-123s, for the most part, flew cargo and passenger missions instead of the tactical airlift for which they had been intended. This was due chiefly to the country's surface transportation being vulnerable to Viet Cong ambush. Along with Mule Train had come six C-123s equipped for defoliation operations and known as Ranch Hand. These planes, plus 69 men, selected from the Special Aerial Spray Flight at Langley Air Force Base, Virginia, and the 464th Troop Carrier Wing at Pope, made up the Tactical Air Force Transport Squadron Provisional 1. With Captain Carl W. Marshall as officer in charge, the unit reached Clark on December 6, 1961 and there awaited policy decisions. It was assigned to PACAF and 2nd Advon, but MAG handled the planning and coordinating. The Advanced Research Projects Agency had been conducting small-scale defoliant tests in South Vietnam since August 1961. Pleased with the results, President Diem became an ardent advocate of the use of herbicides both to destroy crops and to strip away foliage concealing enemy activities. The MAG readied a plan to try defoliant chemicals against border areas, Viet Cong crops, and Viet Cong base areas in Zone D. The JCS endorsed this plan on November 3rd, and Defense Secretary McNamara on the 7th ordered the Air Force to send planes, crews, and chemicals to South Vietnam. On November 30th, President Kennedy approved the defoliation guidelines suggested by the Departments of State and Defense. The approvals were cautious. They called for carefully controlled defoliation flights along key roads and railways 
before undertaking food denial. There was to be no spraying in Zone D or along the border, quote, until there are realistic possibilities of immediate military exploitation, unquote. In other words, spraying for the sake of spraying was out. It had to be linked with ground tactical operations. In theory, the Vietnamese government was managing the operations and the United States was simply supplying the means and serving as a consultant. United States planners saw the technique as an excellent measure to counter ambush, the classic guerrilla tactic mastered by the foe. Killing foliage would deny him hiding along roads and railways. The outcome of wiping out his crops was less certain. But into the summer of 1962, General O'Donnell and Ambassador Nolting continued to harbor reservations on the untried chemicals. The State Department remained apprehensive that the common, non-toxic herbicides would provoke communist charges of chemical warfare. In the meantime, however, Secretary McNamara was eager to continue defoliation activities. Since the Viet Cong had already gathered their seasonal crops when the spray planes entered the country, the initial plan was to defoliate along 300 miles of strategic roads north and northeast of Saigon. President Kennedy severely paired this proposal on January 3, 1962. He authorized experimental spraying against separate targets that comprised merely 16 of the nearly 60 miles between Binh Hoa and Vung Tau on Route 15. The State Department wanted no advance notice aside from local and low-key warnings. Still, the Vietnamese government on January 10, 1962, quote, announced plans to conduct an experiment to rid certain key communications routes of thick tropical vegetation. U.S. assistance has been sought to aid Vietnamese personnel in the undertaking, unquote. Because the C-123 spray planes had no armor plating, General O'Donnell voiced concern that advance notice of flights would expose them to Viet Cong ground fire. The 2nd Advon consequently scheduled fighter cover from Farmgate. According to the rules then in force, a Vietnamese needed to be aboard each spray plane. The planes were to stay clear of areas where food crops were growing. Province chiefs had to be alerted three days in advance of flights so they could explain the non-toxic spray to their citizens. Three C-123s, each fitted with an internal 1,000-gallon chemical tank and removable spray bars attached under the wings, departed Clark and arrived at Tan Son Nut on January 7, 1962. After poring over aerial photos, the crew flew two familiarization sweeps along Highway 15 before embarking on their first full-scale mission on the 13th. For three days, the plane sprayed a 200-meter-wide swath on both sides of selected segments of Route 15. Complete defoliation in 10 days was counted on. However, the leaves turned brown slowly, the vegetation remained alive, and few immediate military advantages resulted. Several tries at burning the sprayed area fizzled. The Viet Cong turned the spraying into a propaganda advantage. They claimed that the spray was chemical warfare and led the peasants to believe it was to blame for all dying plants. A Vietnamese government board established to evaluate claims for accidental destruction angered those people whose suits were denied. On February 7, 1962, a C-123 on a low-level training mission was lost. The cause of the crash was not clear. Enemy ground fire or sabotage was suspected, but the exact reason was never officially proved. The three crewmen were the first USAF fatalities in South Vietnam. By February, several U.S. officials concluded that the spray project was badly managed. General O'Donnell termed it a, quote, blooper from start to finish, unquote. 
he sought to discontinue the program, reconvert the C-123s to standard transports, and give them to Mule Team. He told Secretary McNamara that the spray operations were a waste of aircraft, and he recommended removal of the tanks and spray plumbing. General Moorman joined O'Donnell in calling the project militarily ineffective, and the State Department labeled it, quote, too reminiscent of gas warfare, unquote. In the face of this opposition, McNamara went for continued herbicide experiments. He decided to press ARPA to make the spray work, sending a scientific team to Vietnam in April for a technical assessment. Brigadier General Fred J. Delmore, USA, Commanding General of the Chemical Corps Research and Development Command, headed the team. General Delmore quickly discovered what had gone wrong with the ranch hand defoliant missions. Most of the plants had been dormant, and the herbicide was a growth-regulating chemical that worked only on actively growing plants. Furthermore, the spray system had dispensed too light a dose of chemicals. The system required readjustment and modifications. These findings reassured President Diem. He was willing to begin herbicide operations against Viet Cong crops in the Central Highlands, where guerrillas were seizing food from the Montagnard tribal people. Relocating the Montagnards to strategic hamlets and destroying the crops would cause the Viet Cong to go hungry. Secretary McNamara agreed to seek approval for the use of herbicides against Viet Cong crops. Ambassador Nolting and General Harkins in July forwarded a specific proposal to allow the South Vietnamese to spray 2,500 acres in Puyen province. Following the Viet Cong's killing of two Vietnamese perimeter guards near the Bien Hoa airfield, Admiral Felt suggested spraying the areas around airstrips. Approval came in late June from Washington for defoliating the forest area north of the Bien Hoa runway. Vietnamese H-34 helicopters made these flights in July. General Harkins next urged that ranch hand C-123s treat some 9,000 acres, around 14 square miles, of mangrove forests bordering the rivers and canals of the Kamwa Peninsula to deprive the communists of ambush cover. After approval, two C-123s started the spray operations on September 3rd. Another spray-equipped C-123 sent from the United States joined in later. Finished in October 11th, the flights killed 90 to 95 percent of the vegetation along the waterway. It was estimated that the view from the air was five to seven times better than before. This success spurred the Vietnamese armed forces on December 3rd to seek widespread defoliation of around 90,000 acres along Vietnam's main highways. The state and defense departments let Harkins and Nolting approve operations to clear roadsides, power lines, railroads, and areas adjacent to depots, airfields, and other field installations. Other targets took presidential approval. Inasmuch as the Vietnamese now wanted to spray on their own, McNamara wondered aloud why DM did not buy weed-killing chemicals on the open market and go ahead. Viet Cong propaganda, scoring defoliation, handed DM's government an unforeseen advantage. The Montagnards, who had been impressed with Ho Chi Minh's victory over the French, came to believe that the power to kill trees would bring victory to the Republic of Vietnam. Many of them left the highlands for resettlement in strategic hamlets. The migration reduced the Viet Cong's food supply, and guerrillas had to switch from fighting to farming. In Washington, on September 25, 1962, the Vietnamese Deputy Minister of Defense pressed President Kennedy to authorize the use of chemicals to destroy crops. Kennedy agreed a few days later, and the state and defense departments authorized Harkins and Nolting to proceed with limited test crop destruction operations. 
as long as they took precautions to prevent damage to innocent people and to feed refugees from sprayed areas. State insisted on approving every crop destruction target, however. The rice crop in Puyan province had matured by this time and appeared to be no longer a valid target. The State Department approved an alternate area in Phuoc Long province, and on November 21st and 23rd, five Vietnamese H-34 helicopters treated about 775 acres of rice, potatoes, manioc, beans, and peanuts. This operation destroyed food sufficient to feed 1,000 communists for over a year. During February, May, and June 1963, Vietnamese ground troops sprayed portions of Tua Tien province by hand. In general, the Joint Chiefs of Staff favored further spraying, but President Kennedy withheld blanket authority. He did not wish it to appear that Americans were making war upon Vietnamese peasants. End of chapter 10. Recording by Graham McMillan, San Diego, California.